0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: When you were a child of nine years old, Mm -hmm. the teacher asked you, what would you like to be when you grew up? Mm -hmm. And you said a judge, Mm -hmm. and she had a reaction.
2: Well, uh, that reaction was that uh, little black girls from Balaam don't become judges. Um, And as you can imagine, for me, there was stunned silence. And I was embarrassed because you're in front of all your classmates. People often say to me, what would you say to her if you saw her again? Uh, And I would probably say, thank you for giving me something to fight for and prove. Now although I'm not a judge, I've kind of achieved that sort of equivalent status. But sometimes I say to people, you know, what if I'd said, okay, I won't be a judge then, I'll be Senior Vice President General Counsel of the World (laughs) Bank, whether that would have gone down
0: any better because it was more realistic. (laughs) Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter, and in today's podcast, I'm handing over the reins to our American correspondent, Joe Rosinski. You'll remember him. He's the legal futurist from episode two. He's talking to Sandia Coro, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the World Bank. We find out just what a nine-year-old little black girl from Balaam can achieve when you try to limit her ambitions. She is a woman who has broken the mold and seen her career flourish on this side of the Atlantic and the other. Sandy talks about the role of the World Bank and how her team of over 170 people are promoting the rule of law, access to justice, and making developing countries a better place to live, including its ambition to end extreme poverty by 2030. So sit down and listen as Sandy shares with us some of the stories from her high-flying life.
2: The Hearing
1: This is Joe Rosinski
0: and we're talking
1: with Sandy, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at the World Bank Group. Indeed. Wonderful. So before we get into, I want to know everything about you, and everything that's going <laughs> on at the organization, if you'd like to share. One of the things I'd love to talk about, but I think it's important that I mention, is that there's a lot of congratulations in order. Uh, apparently, you've been named the Financial Times Global GC20, mm-hmm. so that one, one of the top lawyers, right? Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Another one, Law.com says, named your departments, Legal Department of the Year. That's Mm -hmm. also fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, based on uh, tackling world poverty through development. Yep, That's really cool. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And then also Power List has you as Britain's fifth most influential person of African and African Caribbean heritage. There's one more. Uh, We're hearing rumblings from Stockholm talking about a potential Nobel Peace Prize. Is that true? No, (laughs) (laughs) you're kidding, you're very funny. (laughs) So, but those are outstanding awards. So congratulations to you and your team. That's really, really, really really interesting. Thank
2: you, thank you very much.
1: So before we get into what's going on here and how everything is going for you, I'd love to hear a little bit about something that I personally heard about recently uh, from someone that said that many moons ago, when you were a a child of nine years old Mm -hmm. um, the teacher asked you you know what would you like to be when you grew up Mm -hmm. and you said a judge Mm -hmm. and she had a reaction Mm -hmm. what was that your that reaction
2: well uh, that reaction and this was many 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 moons (laughs) ago uh, was that uh, little black girls from balaam don't become judges Um, and as you can imagine um, you know, for me, there was stunned silence, which is unusual. But um, I was only nine years old at the time, um, and I was embarrassed because you're in front of all your classmates. I thought it was an excellent answer. Um, and then I thought again, and I thought, well, you're a teacher, what do you know about being a judge? And if they don't, I'm going to anyway. Um, and I think when I look back on that now, because I do remember that so clearly, I remember how I felt um, and um, I remember thinking, you know, that's, that was something not right about what she said. But when I reflect on it now as a someone sitting in, in, in this role is that. At that age, you are so susceptible and vulnerable, particularly to what adults in authority tell you, that I could easily have believed that was true and drop that ambition.
1: Absolutely makes sense.
2: And the reason I say it when I, when I do my talks and things is because it resonates with so many people uh, that you mustn't take these things on board and you must move past that and move past those people. And um, people often say to me, what would you say to her if you saw her again? Uh, and I would probably say, thank you. Thank you for giving me something to fight for and prove because um, this was, uh, you know something that I've always carried with me showed that I can do it Um, and it was an incentive to work hard and get there. Now although I'm not a judge um, I've kind of achieved that sort of equivalent status but sometimes I say to people you know what if I'd said okay I won't be a judge then I'll be Senior Vice President General Counsel of the World (laughs) Bank whether that would have gone down any better because it was more realistic (laughs) so uh, you know and and I think for anyone who's listening to this and has experienced something like this you, you, you have have to not let anybody's limitations of their own ambitions become limitations of your ambitions. Because if you want to do it and you're pre- prepared to put the work in, um, then it's very, you know, it, it's achievable.
1: Absolutely. Uh, what an unbelievable story. Have you been back to the school?
2: haven't been back to that school, no, Um, but uh, my secondary school was very different, it was quite the opposite. It was have loads of ambition, Uh, you girls are going, it was an all-girls school, you girls are going to rule the world, and um, it was a school called Putney High School in Putney, and um, you know, it it, it was very much a, you're, you're, you're clever girls, you're going to get a good education here and you're going to do brilliant jobs and change the world whatever you are it's quite arty as well so it wasn't just this is all going to be lawyers and doctors it's also you're going to go out there and do something in the arts um and so that that was great and I've been back to that school a couple of times because it was a it was a complete opposite from where I was and I was the only black child in that school until up to the age of 16 wow. and never once was that brought up Really? Yes. I, I, at the time, I thought I was put... Per- Never once was that brought up. And when and, and funnily enough, when I went back to a school reunion and there were these... Uh, all the other girls there who are now obviously much older, I said, you know what? People face a, a lot... Of- at that time, people faced a lot of racism. How come it didn't happen to me? And I said, oh, you were so exotic when you arrived. We we'd all been each other. We just wanted to have you as a friend. Really, it was a bit of a competition. And and I thought, you know what? Maybe that's the way why I have these delusions of (laughs) (laughs) grandeur. That all started there. But so again, it goes to show that you can have different reactions to different things in a way. And often when I say to people, you know, I was the only black child in that school uh, for like four or five years, it's like a real shock. Um, Didn't you face a lot of racism? Weren't you excluded? No, it was the opposite. I I was included in everything um, because everybody kind of wanted me as my my friend. And I think it almost encouraged me to be a bit rebellious, you know, because um, one... You kind of know it was me because I only was the only one who fitted that description of okay. <laughs> <laughs> right So why not? But also, well, what, a, what an opportunity I had. And I'm really good friends with many of the girls from that school today oh, in my so class. Cool. It's, it was a wonderful experience. So it just goes to show you never know what's around the corner. No
1: doubt. Who were your role models back then?
2: Oh wow! Back then was a, this was sort of in the late seventies, early eighties. I know I look way much younger. I was waiting <laughs> for you younger. to say that. <laughs> um, but um, so the the role there were many more women in power and politics around the world then so you would switch on the nine o'clock news and there'd be stories of these women um that were, were doing amazing things in politics whether you like their politics or not was irrelevant so i i'm a thatcher child i grew up when margaret thatcher was the prime minister so the idea of You've got your woman prime minister. You have women reading the news. You have women prime ministers in other parts of the world. Um, you know, have, you have women doing many amazing things. Um, and also you've got the big fight going on uh, against apartheid. Um, women were centre stage to uh, uh, many, many things. And at that point, there were many firsts in terms of, of women doing things. Um, so it was it was almost a golden age of, of, of that. And, of course, in the arts and culture, you had... Um, uh, women fronting um, many sort of musical explosions as well. So everywhere you look, from the arts to the news to power and politics, you had uh, women there. You don't see that quite so much now.
1: Why do you think that is?
2: I have no idea. I have no idea. Hmm. Um, I don't know whether or not my generation has done a disservice to the next generation by saying it's all going to be so hard, and this, that and the other, and, and maybe putting them off. Um, I, I really don't know. It's a surprise. And I look back now and think, what happened? I thought yeah. they were going to, there was going to be this explosion or a natural escalation of, of women up there by numbers, but there isn't. And if I look at the law profession, um, even in my time it was about 50 50 going into the profession and then as you get further up um, it dwindles away so at partner level um, or GC level or whatever you not so many and um, that is still the case still managing partners certainly in London etc not as many women it's not 50 50 oh, wow. so something has happened and it has right. still happened um, I do not put it down to the whole having a family Because otherwise we'd be having a different discussion. We'd be saying, why is it women without families are so successful? It's just women are not successful. So I still think it's the element of discrimination that is there. I think without a doubt. Uh, There's women saying, I'm really fed up with this. I can't keep fighting against this the whole time. Let me go and do something else. My guess, I don't know the statistic, is maybe there's been an explosion in women entrepreneurs. There's been an explosion in women-owned businesses. I think that's where they've gone.
1: And I'm assuming you feel that there's a change happening afoot right about in the last few years? Yes. No? Okay. Yes. Are you positive. I'm hopeful you're positive about what's positive, happening.
2: Positive, very positive. I think the Me Too movement has been very good in that sense. Um, it has been able to allow women to um, air issues that they thought I couldn't possibly not even realizing it's an issue for one thinking this is just how it is and secondly um, finding that camaraderie amongst other women who've experienced this as well and share that and to say this is unacceptable Um, and to create a better environment for everybody and this is the thing that I think is really important one has to remember about sexual harassment in the workplace or where else it's a very bad atmosphere for everybody Uh, not just for the person concerned, but for everybody, because people see it, people know it's going on, and it makes everybody uncomfortable. So to have a harassment-free workplace is really important for everybody. It just makes a nicer workplace, because if something is going on, there is tension in the atmosphere particularly for the person who's at the receiving end, end of it, but their colleagues around it as well. It creates a to- toxic atmosphere. So I think this has been a really great change in the last few years and, and one I want to see continuing. Absolutely. Not not this sexual harassment, the continuing of the of the uh, fight against it.
1: <laughs> my goodness, no question. Yeah. So my understanding is that your father was a teacher he was. from Nigeria. Yes, correct. And your mother was a nurse from Trinidad? Correct. Okay. Your
2: information is very right. good. And I'm
1: great to hear. So um, I think very highly of people that have had uh, parents who are teachers. Mm-hmm. My mom's a teacher, so I'm biased. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but I think it, it does, it changes your perspective on yes. life. Um, how was it for you? How did your parents bring you through and help you focus in on things mm-hmm. uh, to get you where you are today as a basis? Well,
2: um, my mom and dad were very different in characters. So, um, And I think also coming from different parts of the world so an African culture is very different from a Caribbean culture and you put that together and it's a real melting pot (laughs) very exciting one and lots of food and color and things excellent excellent (laughs) food I grew up in a house of great food they were both great cooks Um, but um, they were both immigrants to the United Kingdom and they both came here to study um, and my father came to study history at the London School of Economics. Um, he was sort of first generation of those who uh, left the country um, and, um, could read and could read, you know, his sisters and, and, um, and, and brothers could read and write, but um, his parents couldn't. So, and I always remember him telling me, and I never met my grandparents on my father's side, that his father was illiterate. And so I think, wow, that's a, real, that's a really big jump, isn't it, from having a parent who's illiterate to a son who gets a scholarship. And there's this wonderful photograph of him leaving Nigeria in this wonderful zoot suit and hat and everybody standing beside the plane, right oh, beside the plane, yeah. as they were saying goodbye. And he, he didn't go back until he was 60. So can you imagine that? So he left as a very young man and didn't go back as a much older man. So he instilled in me the importance of education. And also the importance of doing both of them as immigrants who left their home what you want to do, because I always saw them as old fuddy-duddy parents who can't. (laughs) But until I got older, wow, your parents didn't want you to leave and you left the country on an aeroplane to go and study in another country you nothing about. Of course, they're going to say do what makes you happy. And so I think this is something that may be common amongst children of immigrants that actually that push to do something different and to make you do what makes you happy. Of course, they do prize education is really important to to make things better. But also the other thing they both instilled in me because they came from different places. So there was no agreement as to where they could possibly go back Ah. was England is your home and you are British. There is not the identity was instilled in me because there isn't anywhere else you're going, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So you have the Caribbean culture and the African culture. So my name from my dad and sort of the the Caribbean-ness from my mum with a layer on top of the Britishness, because that's all I had. Okay. And it wasn't till I much, was much older that I went to Trinidad in my teens. Um, now it's very different. People go back every year and see that. So there's a real mixture. Back then there wasn't, and they couldn't afford to do it. Um, so, and I, But people would come and visit, and I'd get a mixture of that. So that, they instilled the education and the Britishness. And they also came, they were brought up in colonial times. So their sense of Britishness was very great as well because they've been steeped in it I can't imagine. Um, yeah exactly yeah. exactly so it's it's an unusual thing i think a time that can't really be repeated um and so those two things were sort of uh instilled uh in me and i think maybe um that sort of idea helped deal with some of the racism that you used to get because it, it was really quite rife then um but you just got on with it you know mm-hmm. and and you you weren't able to turn around and go you've been racist against me, that's a hate crime. Right. Didn't exist. You know, you got on with it. That's what people said. Uh, You didn't like it, though. People have never liked it. It's like the meter. you never liked it. But then later on, things evolve where you can do something about it. Um, So you learn to live with it. So I guess that gives you a bit of resilience, a bit of... God, tell me something I haven't heard of in terms of name-calling, please, because this is so unoriginal. That would go through your mind. Someone to call you your name, and you just look and you think, that is so unoriginal. I've heard that a hundred times. Oh. Why doesn't somebody come up with a new name I've never heard? <laughs> <laughs> right. Once, I'll tell you once, somebody did. There's always, um, there's always, I find that Irishmen have a very great sense of humour when it comes to one-liners. And I remember this, I was at the British Museum as a, as a, as a, as a child, I must have been about seven or eight. And a big school trip, everybody was there, and there's this group of Irish schoolboys there. You could hear their accents. Okay. And it was very cold, right? And my mum had knitted me this absolutely gorgeous crocheted cream hat that I was wearing, mm. taking the coats off. And this cheeky little Irish boy turns to me and goes, Guinness. <laughs> 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 Which was actually very funny. But you do not goodness. laugh because right. it was not only was it crocheted, it was crocheted oh. with bubbles on, you know, like little oh. bubbles on as well. And I was thinking, don't laugh. And there was my friend behind me going, oh, my this,
1: goodness. Is so,
2: this is so mean, oh. <laughs> because even when I say this to people now, it is actually but it isn't funny. But sometimes right. you have to laugh at the ingenuity of it. But you get comments like that all the time. Very mean ones, but people would say that to you, but you just think, oh. but that was an original one. I hadn't heard that once since.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> or before that.
2: <laughs> oh, but can geez. you imagine now?
1: I, I cannot.
2: Wow. Those, are the, those are the kind of things I grew up with going, growing up. Uh, but oh, it didn't far. stop me going somewhere, or my parents didn't say, you can't do this, or, you know, there, there was no, none of that kind of protection we want to give our children and shielding we want to give them from the outside world. It's just, there it is, out you go.
1: So you've done a lot of travel. Here and probably before you came to the World Bank Group. I Um, did a
2: lot as a teenager as well.
1: Wow. How many countries have you hit at this stage? I
2: haven't counted. No. I haven't counted. But I think I've been to every continent bar Australia. Okay. Got to go there. Which has got to go there, which is on my (laughs) list. Um, Through work and through my own travel, because I always do travel a lot before work took me to... Work here at the bank has taken me to some really interesting places um, because obviously we have a presence in over, I think it is, um, 70 countries. Wow. Um, so I've nowhere near visited 70 countries, but it just goes to show what our footprint is. Um, but they are also some of the most... Um, some of them are very challenging countries as well. Um, and I so that I think the one that my heart went out to it and I felt, wow, was Liberia, which has just come out as a post-conflict country. Um, Because you could see the remains of the conflict there, you could see the development challenges. And you realise that, you know, I I thought this is why I came into the job that I do. I want to help countries like Liberia succeed and come out of this conflict, and particularly the women in these countries that have faced horrific sort of violence and gender-based violence as well. So um, I think my job has shown me another side of the world. When I was in the private sector and traveling for work because um, I was in the finance you're going to see shall we say the more affluent parts of the countries you go right. to this job takes me to the exact opposite, the exact opposite. even though it's the same country yeah.
1: <laughs> my goodness is there a story or something that you have that resonated with you about um, the positivity that, that might be coming from some of these countries now in terms of the change that the World Bank's had or the influx of money and maybe it's, it's a new set of crops that are coming in or mm-hmm. new technologies that are mm-hmm. coming in. Has there been something you've seen that you're like, oh, wow, this is going to change and affect people's lives?
2: Um, what a great question. I tell you one thing I've seen in every single country without a doubt, because obviously I'm going to countries where World Bank has projects, and their projects are usually really big, infrastructure projects, health projects, that do change people's lives. So the first thing is you go to these countries and they all know who the World Bank is. You go to the UK and people don't really know. So it's really interesting, because it's it's a key part of people's growing up. And even, so here in my team, I have 172 people from 65 different countries. So many of them as well, come from um, the countries that have had World Bank projects in them. So they grew up with the World Bank around them. And so they thought, I'd like to go and work there. So what I have noticed, without a doubt, in every single country, is the youth of of those countries. The similarity across the board of, A, wanting to embrace the new world and technology and what they can do for their countries. And... Really, um, you know, uh, wanting to make their country a better place, knowing what their country should do, knowing how they can contribute to it. The vibrancy of the young people, the ingenuity of the young people, lots of young entrepreneurs, if they're given the chance, is so striking in all of these countries. Um, No complacency, no sense of expectation, just drive and ambition. It's so energising, which is amazing.
1: I totally agree. So I'd love to throw something out to you, and I want to hear your your reflections on it, if you'd like to share. Um, There is a man named Peter Diamandis. Mm -hmm. Um, He started something called Singularity University. And his idea, he's a futurist, and one of his Mm. ideas is that we are going through this phase of exponential growth. Mm -hmm. So all the different technology, from drones to biotech to quantum computing to artificial intelligence, all these different things are coming together so that he thinks... He thinks that we're going to live in We're starting to live in a world of abundance such that in 30 years time from today, he believes that there's not going to be any poverty.
2: I would challenge that in some way, because the um, you know, our goal is to end extreme poverty by 2030. So okay. it's part of the SDG goals. Wow. And, I, and there are a lot of people in poverty in this world right now. So that's a lot of extreme to, to, to I think you need more that. than abundance. I think you need some action. What, what I would say is that, um, so one in 10 people live in extreme poverty, which is less than $1.90 a day. Wow. That's a lot of people. Um, and um, when when we say these things, we have to make sure that you are including everybody in this abundance, and one group that often gets left behind is women. Okay, and um, so you having an abundant society and everybody having abundance because everything. Even when I go on my trips, you see how many people are left behind. You see that in cities are very different from rural communities, and uh, one of the things that my team and the bank are really um, working on uh, as part of our development goals and aims promoting the rule of law and access to justice because you can't have abundance without that because you can't keep your abundance if there's no rule of law and access to justice but in rural areas or in countries that face conflict or whatever this is an evolving thing and so establishing or or working into our projects because we work with our member countries we are driven by what they want um, to to try and get more access to justice and rule of law projects, particularly ones that also benefit women are really important. But when you see how further behind women are in that poverty cycle anyway, um, I, I I challenge something as optimistic as that. I, I, I love the optimism and I love the simplicity of it, but I see another side that is terribly complex, yeah. terribly real, and you see the distance. Lit, sometimes literally in places i went to a wonderful see a wonderful project of ours in indonesia in a really remote remote part and it was a water project so we'd bought water to this village okay um through our projects etc prior to that um i had this lovely woman come and talk to me through an interpreter who said she would spend four hours a day getting water it took a two hour well one hour to go down the hill with the empty, ca- the empty canister, it was really big, on her back and her baby. Wow. And then one hour to come back up, maybe even longer, with a full canister. And, the- and she did that twice a day. So that's four hours of her life just going to get water. She said she's got four hours back in her life to spend with her children because she turns on a tap.
1: Ah, fantastic.
2: Um, and that is the kind of thing that leads to abundance later because you can do something more with your four hours. You can maybe start a small business. You can also help your children be educated so they can get a better job. So I'm not so sure that that sounds very simple, great optimism, but I don't think these things happen by themselves. And how do you make that sure that, because one of the things we're trying to do is make sure the poorest of the poor do not remain poor. And I think with anything it doesn't really trickle down like that unless you have a concerted effort to eradicate the poverty. And there's so many factors in that and I think rule of law and justice is one, health is another. We have a really good project which is the human capital index which looks at um, you know what do you put into your young population to make them more successful later in terms of health and education so you have to make sure these things are available you you want the next generation to be healthy and well educated and knowledgeable so you have to put that in so I, I think it's way more complex than that um, uh, In in many ways even if it wasn't my question would be what about the women how, how, how are you going to make this filter through to them? Because in so many countries, they are so disadvantaged and do not have access to the wealth. And in some countries, only the male members of their household have access to the wealth. So unless you start changing that dynamic, you're not really going to get that.
1: No, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And it makes a lot of sense. I think the the idea that, that this was, was trying to be baked into this was that, technology is making so many uh, changes and advances such that people are leaping over things that we were taking advantage of for years like our our computers everyone has their phones now so everywhere i've traveled and it's been random places like nepal and colombia and thailand and cambodia and it's been some rougher areas um and everyone has a cell phone i'm like what in the world everyone has a cell phone they may not have electricity may not have running water but they have a cell phone that to me like struck a chord then um, the hope, the hope is that some of these things will filter down to everyone so that if you have a cell phone or a device, maybe, maybe you could take advantage of other things like um, digital money so people can send money from each to each other. Like so so right?
2: let me give you, let me give you a, a really good example. Please, yeah, my... yeah. Uh, So with many things like digital money, whatever, you often need to have an identity to go with that as well. But many women don't have an identity because they're denied that for a number of reasons. Or they can't pass on their identity to their children in a particular country because of the sort of customs and laws there. So their children don't have an identity. So if you can't have an identity, actually bars you getting hold of many things to start off with. That's one. The other thing is domestic violence often means the phones are taken away from the women. So assuming there's an equal holding of the phones and the technology is not right. And I I think that, you know, I've heard anecdotally that in some places where there is a lot of domestic violence um, that is prevalent, and this is across all um, races and all, um, you know, stratas of society, that um, a woman having a mobile phone that is more sophisticated and a higher grade than the man and that will not be allowed so although women may be more entrepreneurial and do more with it she may not be allowed to have the more sophisticated phone so even when you drill down to these things there are certain aspects of that that may um may, may be may be challenging
1: uh, that totally makes sense no i get that absolutely hmm. so sandy i'm curious about your perspective you've transitioned uh from practice of law where you were a a barrister as well as a solicitor, and now you're a general counsel. So what is it like now going from the private sector to where we're at right now at the World Bank?
2: Well, let me just say, first of all, there are many similarities, as many similarities as there are differences. Um, So um, yes, the World Bank is a financial institution, but it is also a knowledge institution, a knowledge bank so it has a lot of wonderful qualities about academia with it because people are encouraged to come up with new ideas to research them to make them into something to help um, uh, the poorest of the poor Um, because that's what we do our mission is to um, end extreme poverty so um, how do we do that we do that through lending we do that through grants we do that through guarantees for projects in our member countries but uh, the aim is ending poverty. So all these projects are aimed at that and um, bringing our member countries um, out of that through to middle income, from lower income to middle income at the other end. This is a very important thing to remember. So from the, the, the jump from the private sector as a lawyer to, um, to the World Bank is I became a, a lawyer in development. It's very different. I was a lawyer in finance, heavily regulated industry, etc. I jumped over and became a lawyer in development. You could say I became an international lawyer, but that doesn't really describe it. It really is a lawyer in development because development needs of our clients are top of what we do. And so we are all helping to fight extreme poverty because that's our mission and so at the end of it when we're looking at everything that we do we have to understand what it is we're doing in the context in which we do that way more than you have to understand it in the private sector so you have to understand the country's push and pulls you have to understand the economy you have to understand what has happened in the past in the history you have to understand the location in the other countries surrounding them all those sorts of things when it comes to giving really good advice doing that in in a vacuum you cannot do so you become way more than a lawyer you become an expert in development at the same time in how development works sounds like the
1: Game of Thrones (laughs) oh don't
2: get me started on that I love Game of Thrones I love Game of Thrones so sad it's over
1: I know Um, definitely
2: but you you know it's, it's very exciting work because you don't because you I'm not saying that working in the city that I loved wasn't exciting And it it was exciting for different reasons, but because there were aspects of it that were um, sometimes heart-stopping, sometimes complex. But you never really saw the outcome of what you were doing. I can go and visit the outcome. I can go and visit that project. I can go and visit, I went very recently to Tanzania to look at um, a new court system, um, uh, to look at the mobile courts. You can go and see it. I went to sit in the van that the bank had been doing. We had a new mobile um, court project, a justice project, where um, we would take, instead of people going to court and maybe from rural communities, travelling hundreds of miles, using a whole month's salary to get to court for a reason, the court came out to them in a van, a magistrate in a van. Wow. A magistrate in a van. (laughs) Really simple. The The bank is really good at this stuff. doesn't over engineer when it doesn't have to and i went and and this was a new van all set up bank project setting i can go and see and literally touch our projects this for a lawyer is amazing Um, and all lawyers in development have that passion because you can see the outcomes you can see what and this and many lawyers are so proud of their projects and that's what that that they work on that is really um, important and we're side by side with um, the rest of our teams in the bank making things happen and we have some brilliant minds so the majority of the bank is fair to say are from uh, economics um, sort of background so they're economists um, but there are also lots of other specialists like health specialists water specialists engineers etc all of that combination and they're the top of the top they call the world bank something in the world's brain because they're coming up with new ideas like that all the time and i think if you are an economist and that is your training there is almost a um, almost a must do of coming through the bank or the IMF at some point in your training to understand the way that it works. But of course, the other difference is is that our members are governments. So this is another. This is so it has that sort of public sector civil servant um, aspect of it, which is then very different from the private sector. Um, so you are, I think, maybe as a result of that lots of things that the bank does are quite high profile um, and so that that awareness of, of the role that you pay, play in the development community as one of the big development institutions you, you're, you're very aware of you can't you can't hide um, in that sense so it's but the legal discipline the legal risk management the knowing your topic giving good advice to your client is the same on either side you have to be on top of your game oh, um, and you have to be available and you have to understand the um, sort of environment that you're in. It's a special
1: place. My father Very worked here place. for oh, really? 15 years. Oh, And what I remember as a kid was that every single time we'd go out, one of, he'd name people were like, oh, you know, Bob, what did you do? What, what did you work on just in general? And he'd always go through his resume. But he'd always, always highlight the bank. He's like so prideful of it, yes. love the work that was done here. Yes. And it makes a great deal of yes. sense based on what yes. you've been talking about. Yes.
2: The other thing that's really unique to the bank... It's like your second family. We have 189 member countries, and we have people from all those member countries representing the bank, working at the bank, here and in our um, other 70 offices all over the world. So we're really global. We really are global. And people you hear at least four or five languages going five floors in the lift, any lift in the bank. For many people, they have left at some point their original family behind somewhere and have come to live in another country, be it DC, be it Ghana, be it where you know um, somewhere in South America or in Asia or wherever it is, because everybody travels around and so you have your second family that is the bank and those people so really strong bonds are formed and that, that closeness to the bank someone said this to me and my team, it's like your second country. Yes. Um, And because it is so international, it is it is like that. And that's why I think people there's the work that we do that everybody loves because of the mission. And secondly, there's the camaraderie of that internet. You cannot get that anywhere else. Everything is so colourful in that sense. And it, it spoils you, trust me. It spoils <laughs> you because I love the diversity and the inter- internationality of it because it's everywhere and you just learn so much just from people around you.
1: And I've heard that you also have an amazing cafeteria. <laughs> we <laughs> do. We
2: do because the food is from every – it represents – so if, if you are missing your home country food, it's down there. It's also cooked by chefs from those parts of the world. So it is genuine and authentic. But guess what? People eat you, you, the, the queue for the food from sort of uh, the continent of Africa is from everywhere all over the world. Right. Because these people have lived all over yes. the world and like that. The queue for the Asian food is all over the world because people have literally lived in all these countries and know whether it's good food or not. So you see that international aspect of it. The best one I like to give as an example is if you ever go to a party in someone's house and um, there are World Bank staff there, they get up to dance to music from all over <laughs> the world, right? It's not, oh, I don't know what this is. I don't know how <laughs> right. to dance this. It's the, it's the best example of the international atmosphere of that. But I think people who are attracted to the bank in the first place, and there's, it's, a, it's very competitive to get into, are hugely um, sort of um, they're a little bit sort of the creme de la creme from their country from an educational perspective and and we do have the pick of the bunch in that sense. So many people in, in 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 many of the countries, after a stint at the bank, may go back and take up quite senior positions in government in their in their home countries, and you see that quite a lot. They 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 may. Be called up to come and do this, to come and serve in governments, etc., etc. This is really unusual, and I have um, someone in my team, and I won't embarrass her name where she's from. But she got a call from her country to ask whether she would be interested in being the Attorney General. Wow. That's the standard that's that I have in my team. Yes. I do not think the British government will be ringing me up to be the Attorney General. <laughs> but that just go- but no. Nobel
1: Prize is coming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it just goes to show that, you know, the quality, of the- and that's just in the legal team, you have people, people do leave here to go to be ministers of finance and, and um, you know, uh, Min- Ministry of Foreign Affairs and things. We, that actually happens, and that's what makes this place so interesting. Or they come here having done that, and you think, oh my goodness, wow.
1: Yes, no, no, Really doubt. impressive. <laughs> so I have two questions left, if that's okay. Sure. So the first one I was thinking about was, you've been here roughly two years in this nearly role? Nearly three, nearly three. three. Three, okay, okay. my three. apologies, three years. Um, is there a particular project that, that jumps to the front of mind as something you're prideful of with your team that you've worked on? since you've been here?
2: Um, well, let me just say my my team, who are absolutely wonderful, um, and I, I'm impressed by them every day in the hard work, the dedication, and, and the projects they work on, work on so many interesting projects. And I would be doing them a disservice to pick one. Fair enough. Um, but let me just say, they are, some of them are groundbreaking projects, some of them are life-changing projects for the people in the countries they work on, and these these are heavy lifts. These these are really complicated things. Let me just talk about a direction of travel that we're doing. Is um, one of the things that um, I have really. I have tried to focus on uh, in my time is around um, justice for for women, um, the gender issues, how we can start to help our member countries should they want to change the laws on their books that discriminate against women. So we have started a concept within the team called Empowering Women by Balancing the Law, EWBL, which the idea is, it's kind of a one-stop shop for our member countries to work with all aspects of the bank, if they want to, as part of their program, do some changes to the laws on their books that discriminate against women. And we have a wonderful publication here, which I recommend you read, called uh, Women, Business and the Law. It's not produced by my team, it's produced by another wonderful team in the bank. But it sets out all the laws in our member countries that... um, hamper women from getting having the same equality as men in the country and and some of it are really really sort of interesting um so in the you know that they're, they're in there there are some countries where women cannot drive a vehicle with more than 10 people in or something like that. Which means, so you can't be a bus driver. You can't do certain things. So it limits women's ability. That's just just a very simple example. Um, So looking at these laws, and obviously um, laws that restrict women's entry in and out of the country, um, that restrict their um, access to their children, that restrict their access to getting their identity, their nationality, passing it on, all sorts of things like that. We are working on building a product that we can work with the member countries and A to Z to change what they want, bring in other organizations, bring in some of our fantastic teams in the bank to, to, to build that, um, to build that up. And we want to do, as I said, more work on justice and the rule of law and working very, uh, very cohesively with other teams in the bank to really make that happen and bring that up. Very and I've been asked to be the institutional voice of the World Bank's uh, projects on uh justice and law reform which is really good so to talk more about it to say the world bank is in this business right just don't it's not just the building of roads we want to do these as well if our member countries want to do them um i'm also proud of uh some of the things that people do on the side uh, of the table um and um we we've that, that some of the uh, um, some of the people within the legal team in their spare time um, on top of all the hard work that they do have produced three compendium uh, one is a, a compendium on uh, female genital mutilation FGM uh, domestic violence and child marriage and it's a very simple idea and and so what they did is they said these are of all our member countries so 189 these are all the laws on the books for example take FGM that say FGM in one way shape or form is illegal in the country these are all the countries in which FGM happens draw your own conclusions the laws are already on the books but it's not yet the child marriage one was really interesting as well these are all the countries in the world and the ages at which you can get married um, without your parents permission with your parents permission etc what is really interesting is that um, there are many many countries in this world where more so girls than boys, can get married at a very young age with their parents' permission. This, of course, leads into planned poverty for women because once you get married, you have children. Once you have children, you're not going to finish your education. Right. FGM, again, once once young girls are cut, they're more likely to marry early, more likely to have... Um, Uh, children early and therefore their access to education, their future is. So, um, you know, and domestic violence, which is the other one. Again, it blights women's ability to be a productive member of society in the way that they want to be. So we put these compendiums and put them together, which are really useful for many organizations to look at, because it's just the statement of the facts of law. Right. And you can say to someone, the law says this can't be done. Now, the law changes nothing in terms of culture. I understand that. Just because you change the, the law, does not change the culture. But what is very interesting is there's usually a cultural movement first to change the law. And then once the law is changed, it starts to become the cultural norm. So we're here in Washington, D.C., yes. Martin Luther King's statue is right, just around the, the corner. Road. The whole idea of segregation, etc., that was kind of enshrined, once all of that changed and you had to desegregate schools, that was the law. People didn't like it. Right. They might not have liked sitting next to the black child at school. But guess what? After a number of years... That culture changes because that's what you have to do, and then people can't. Well, I'm saying they can't remember, but then what that was like that you could actually say you cannot come to this school because of the color of your skin changes. Same thing with apartheid you get rid of it because it's no longer the law. Over time, the cultural attitudes towards it will align. That's why I think the law and the rule of law is really important in these things. We're not saying change the law, you fix everything. But what we're saying, you can't really fix it without it, the right being right. enshrined in law. Because you can turn around and say, you can't treat me like that. The law says, you know, that helps as well.
1: That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Wow. So,
2: But I, let me just say again, I'm really proud of all the projects the team do, um, particularly my operational lawyers who are, uh, really at the heart of what we do day to day, working alongside everyone in the member countries. They are the real sort of heart and soul of uh, of what goes on. And then the other lawyers in the other team are really massively um, important in terms of other th- making making the bank tick. So, um, you know, we all have our role to play. So I'm not, that's why I'd be very careful picking something out. So <laughs> I'm just right? picking out uh, little passions here and there.
1: <laughs> well, my goodness. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today i really really appreciate it's it been entertaining it's been it's been wonderful to hear about everything that's going
0: on at the bank as well Mm -hmm. so thank Mm -hmm.
2: you thank you very much i really enjoyed it
0: the hearing as ever thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe that way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode the hearing a legal podcast from Thomson reuters To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.